Hi there, me hearties, and welcome to the Bible Pirate Podcast. My name is Matt Valor. We are in the second voyage, and this is episode four. We're working our way through the Torah, the Pentateuch, the books of the law, the first five books of the Bible, dealing with big chunks normally in each episode. Thanks to all of you who've got in touch. It's always really brilliant hearing from you. I really appreciate you coming on this voyage with me. Please do continue to spread the love and share the word. Uh, If you can give a review to the podcast, that really helps other people find it. And please take a look at the Patreon page at patreon.com slash Bible Pirate. In this episode, we are continuing in Genesis, this time with the epic of Joseph and the sons of Israel. The previous episode of the podcast was a special edition where I read a new retranslation of that story from the unauthorized version. So if you want to listen to the whole story and get your head in it before you come to this episode, then you'll find it there. But in this episode, we are going deep into one of the most well-known stories. Well-known, but often poorly told. So I have got a confession for you you know those uh questions that go around like facebook or whatever you know name your first album that you bought and i always just let them quietly pass me by but it's time it's time to bring it out into the open so when i was 11 years old i went to get my first album and i decided (laughs) this is a true story i decided i wanted an album by the band wet 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 and I got to the shops ready to buy this album and then I was just totally distracted by this other one that I found which I did eventually buy and so the truth of the matter is my first album was the soundtrack to Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat starring Jason Donovan It's a fact over which I'm not immensely proud. At the same time, if someone broke into this Cornish shed in which I'm recording this podcast, held a gun to my head and said, you're a dead man unless you can sing the entirety of Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat with all the different voices and without forgetting a single word, I would have no fear for my life. That is the truth. And I have to also be honest and say, it has been a struggle not to just lay that down as a single take track for this whole podcast episode and just put it out there. But anyway, there's uh, other things to talk about. There's actually a whole story in the Bible that we could deal with. And the, the reality is that translating this story was so immensely difficult because everything that we know about the story of Joseph is so massively influenced by Andrew Lloyd Webber and Tim Rice that actually trying to tell the Genesis story is incredibly difficult. Every time I want to tell parts of the story, I've just got Jason Donovan singing in the back of my head. But really, Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat is what happens if you take this biblical story, you stuff it through a mangled filter of individualized American capitalism. Only then can you 
entirely without irony, turn the story of a man who systematically enslaved an entire nation as a result of famine into an individual dreamer for whom any dream will do. The Genesis story of Joseph is really shocking. It's also complex, subtle and with many layers. And that's some of what I'm going to try and peel apart in this episode to tell this more interesting, complex version of the story. One that casts a long, eerie shadow over so much of what is to come. The popular version of the Joseph story is of an arrogant teenager who dreams of greatness, spoiled by his father, loathed by his brothers, ends up being sold to traders as a slave to Egypt. So far, so good. But that's only the first chapter of this 13-chapter story. The second chapter is not about Joseph at all. It's about his brother Judah and the shocking story of his daughter-in-law Tamar and his call to burn her immediately when he finds out that she's pregnant only to be confronted that he is in fact the father. So this story of Joseph, it turns out, isn't just about Joseph. Some people have tried to claim that that's kind of an insertion into the story. The main story is about Joseph, but this episode with Judah and Tamar just needed to be recorded. So it gets kind of shoved in there because that's where it fits in the narrative. But I really disagree with that from a literary perspective. Genesis as a whole, all 50 chapters, it seems to me has been edited together in some kind of coherent unity. But Chapters 37 to 50 seem much more like a story in their own right. And that's demonstrated very clearly by the repeated use of certain literary themes within the story. Cloaks, for example, which relate to covering and uncovering and to power and subjugation. Seed, which is vital to the growing of new grain and is at stake in this terrible famine, but which also represents the continuing of the generations. The word for semen in Hebrew is the same as the word for seed. And who will supply seed and who will grow it is a major theme of the story. And then there is the theme that shapes the whole narrative from beginning to end about what constitutes a brother's responsibility. All three of these themes feature in the story of Judah and Tamar, just as they do through the rest of the narrative with Joseph. And in fact, as I hope to narrate in this episode, it is the movement of these themes that creates the drama and opens up the power of the story, its potential and its terror for Israel. So the popular story continues. Joseph rises to prominence in the house of Potiphar before being falsely accused of rape by his wife. He's thrown into prison where he rises to prominence and responsibility again before interpreting the dreams of the head cupbearer and the head baker. 
Eventually, he finds himself before Pharaoh, interpreting a powerful dream and creating a strategy for the salvation of Egypt. In the popular story, by that point, there isn't far to go. Joseph's brothers come down to Egypt. There's some drama with the cup in the sack. Benjamin is going to be imprisoned, but Judah pleads with him and Joseph relents and weeps before them and they are all reunited as one happy family. That's really where the story differs from the tale told in Genesis. When Jacob finally comes to Egypt and is reunited with Joseph, we've still got several chapters left. These deal with the question of where Joseph's family will settle in Goshen, in the northeast of Egypt, near the Delta. Fertile land. But then as soon as that is decided, the story reaches its darkest moment of all. The people of Egypt come to Joseph, begging him for food because they have run out of money. And he forces them to sell their livestock to him in exchange for grain. The following year they come back and say, all our livestock is gone. We only have our bodies and our lands. So he says, sell me those as well. And by doing that, he enslaves the whole of Egypt. This is the climax that the story has been waiting for. But the popular retellings, whether on Broadway or in Sunday school, always stop the story before here. Because there is no getting around it. However you read this story, Joseph ends up subjugating an entire people as the governor of the world's most powerful empire. And then the final three chapters are an extended family reaction to the whole thing. Because, of course, this isn't just a story about Jacob and his sons, or about Joseph and his time in Egypt. This is a central story to the very identity of the people of Israel, structured around the 12 tribes named after the characters in this story. It's their relationship and their status within Israel that's at stake here. This is not just a story about a family drama. This is the fight for the soul of a people. Now, I've mentioned the work of Professor Mark Brett from Whitley College in Melbourne, a part of the University of Divinity. He wrote this commentary on Genesis, which I think is really important and has provoked me particularly in thinking about how to structure the beginning of this second voyage. The book is called Genesis, Procreation and the Politics of Identity. And I've, I found it so useful because of the lens with which he approaches the final editing of Genesis into the form that we have it. I want to use Mark Brett's work one more time because I think it provides a really useful way into this story, but also because I want to push his work further than I think he goes himself. The question of identity politics feels like one of the most vital, pressing questions of our present moment. And dealing with this story through that lens is, for me, a helpful way both to get into this incredible story that we're travelling through, but also to read the experience, our present experience, 
today. So the context that Mark Brett sets us up in for the final editing of Genesis is the Persian period after the Babylonian exile, where Nehemiah is the Persian governor and Ezra is the primary priest. The policies they implement on behalf of the Persian imperial state are ethnocentric. Anyone who cannot trace their Israelite heritage is sent away. A mythology grows around the holy seed. It is a race-driven policy that separates people on the basis of blood. This moment after the exile is chaotic. After 70 years in Babylon, the leaders of the land are allowed to return and they're trying to figure out whose land is whose, who is responsible for whom, for what and where. The stories of the past, the tribal structure of the past, are vital tools that they're drawing on to make sense of their present reality and to figure out their future. The Babylonian exile affected the kingdom of Judah, the southern kingdom on the western side of the Salt Sea. The northern kingdom of Israel had been exiled nearly 150 years previously after being invaded by the Assyrians. The tribes living there had been scattered, some taken away even as far as Persia itself, others fleeing as refugees down into the kingdom of Judah. But those two kingdoms only emerged after the united monarchy, the single kingdom of Israel under King Solomon, split. And it's my belief that we need to tell that story in order to understand the story of Joseph. The united monarchy is really cemented under King David, a king from the tribe of Judah. His son, King Solomon, takes the monarchy to even greater heights. But after his death, his son, Rehoboam, is rejected by many of the people in Israel. The tribe of Judah rally round their leader, and Benjamin follows. But the other tribes throw their weight behind Jeroboam, an exiled slave master from Egypt. Jeroboam is from the tribe of Ephraim. He is a slave master in the kingdom of Israel on behalf of King Solomon. Jeroboam was working in Jerusalem in charge of the repairing of its walls when he was met by a prophet from Shiloh called Ahijah. Ahijah was wearing a new cloak, but he takes it off and tears it into 12 pieces. He then gives Jeroboam 10 of those pieces and says that Yahweh is going to make him king over 10 of the tribes of Israel. And so Jeroboam flees in exile to Egypt, awaiting his chance. A son of Joseph with a torn cloak in Egypt, waiting to lord over his brothers. You can find that story in the first book of the Kings in chapter 11. When Rehoboam succeeds his father Solomon as king, the people come to him and say, lift 
the yoke that your father put on us, the slavery they were suffering was too harsh. But Rehoboam responds, my finger is thicker than my father's thigh. In other words, you think that was slavery? You haven't seen anything yet. And so 10 of the tribes of Israel rally round this former slave master, Jeroboam, in order to escape the slavery of Rehoboam. They leave Judah and choose Ephraim, the son of Joseph. Now, if you read the prophets, particularly from later on in the kingdom of Israel, often they will refer to Israel as Ephraim, because that tribe was so much bigger and more powerful than the other tribes that it became synonymous with Israel itself. And so the whole situation of these two kingdoms, once united, now divided, constantly at war with each other, that is a family struggle between Joseph and Judah. And that is the context for this story in Genesis. Who is the greatest of the two and on what basis is their greatness earned reading that story now this epic of joseph and the sons of israel understanding that history and reading from this persian imperial context the complexity of the story and its themes start to take on a different deeper dimension of course judah would be the main character in chapter 2, since Joseph was the main character in chapter 1. Both men emerge pretty poorly from their introductions. Joseph sold into slavery in Egypt. On one hand, we feel sorry for him, but on the other, his arrogance and the privilege he enjoyed within his father's house make him an ambivalent figure. Judah, fooled by his Canaanite daughter-in-law, has to acknowledge that she is more just than he is, and it's the child he never meant to give her that ends up becoming the ancestor of King David. It's Perez, the twin who bursts through the breach and emerges ahead of his brother. So, after those first two chapters, that national struggle is set up. Jeroboam evoked by the tearing of Joseph's cloak and his position in Egypt. Rehoboam evoked by the birth of Perez, the son of Judah with Tamar. But the ambivalence of it all is what feels most striking. Why is the story being told this way? It's hardly a national mythology to make you feel all patriotic and gung-ho. So imagine you're one of the editors of Genesis. You're living in the new Persian state of Yehud, west of the Salt Sea, with Jerusalem as your capital. Nehemiah has rebuilt the walls, and together with Ezra, they've cleansed the city of all foreign influence. The tribes there, at least officially, are Judah and Benjamin, and a portion of the Levites. Unofficially, people from all the twelve tribes remain, 
married, intermingled with the other people of the land, the Canaanites, the Ammonites, the Edomites, the Moabites, and so on. Ezra and Nehemiah were obsessed with Moses, with his law and the stipulations of clean and unclean, included and excluded. As officials of the Persian Empire, they enact these exclusivist policies because that's what works for empires. Divide and rule. So you want to tell a story that challenges this hegemonic power, this poisonous myth of racial and religious purity. But you can't just come out and challenge it or you'll be locked up by the state and your work will be suppressed. If you are going to undermine this poisonous system and the ideas that sustain it, you are going to have to tell a carefully crafted story that is sufficiently ambivalent to fly under the imperial radar, but whose ambivalence is its power as it undermines stories built on certainty. So you tell a story about a faraway place like Egypt. Little do the Persian authorities know that in the Jewish imagination, Egypt is code for Babylon and all the powerful empires that followed. You have Judah marry a Canaanite wife, but you indict the marriage through the death of their evil sons. And you mock Judah for the debacle with Tamar. It's enough to distract from the twist where you wrote this Canaanite woman into King David's ancestry and validated her just cause over Judah. But the real genius is how you throw the attention onto the divided kingdoms in order to deflect from your other vital contemporary themes. And in my opinion, the allusion to Ahijah's cloak is actually the obvious reading for the people of Israel during the Persian period. It might not be such a well-known story today, but it is the origin story for the divided kingdom. And so Ahijah's cloak was a major moment in the national mythology of Israel. It seems to me that for anyone hearing this for the first time, that's immediately where they go. A tussle between Ephraim and Judah, symbolized by the tearing of a cloak. But it's that tussle, that obvious reading, that provides the foil for the real focus, which is dealing with a racist imperial state. And this is where we return to those literary themes that emerge through the story. Firstly, there's the cloak. It has this obvious connection to Jeroboam and Ahijah, but it also evokes subtler questions of control. Joseph loses one cloak in Dothan to his brothers, but then he loses another with Potiphar's wife. Because she takes his cloak, she controls his destiny. A similar theme gets evoked by Tamar, who takes off her widow's clothes, covers her body and hides her face. 
And implicit in what follows, i.e. sex with Judah, is the removal of the covering of her body, but not of her face. Otherwise, he would recognise her. So by controlling her cloak, she retains control of events. And then there's the moment later on when Joseph accuses his brothers of being spies. And what he says is they've come to see the nakedness of the land. And it's a phrase he repeats as if to reinforce it. Now, as Mark Brett points out, it's quite an odd phrase to use if you're accusing someone of spying. So there's an obvious sense to it, I think, in which it's to do with the possibility that Joseph himself is exposed by their visit. But I think we can read a much deeper allusion which follows this theme that controlling the cloak is about having control itself. This moment seems to me that it's about uncovering the way that imperial power works. As in Egypt, so in Persian-controlled Yehud. The imperial state prevails by controlling seed. Which is the second theme. It's a straightforward story of famine in which grain plays the central role. But that masks the much deeper connection to the racist mythology of the holy seed. Who will supply seed and who will grow it? is the question raised by the story. And what's the cost of doing so? The Egyptians sell themselves into slavery just to get seed to grow. Tamar pretends to be a prostitute to do the same. Onan is killed for not supplying seed. And so the question is left on Joseph. What is the cost of failing to provide seed to those who need it in order to live. Seed becomes an ethical issue, exactly as the Persian state intended. But this story subtly inverts the ethics, because the status of Joseph as the governor of Egypt evokes the role of the governor in the Persian period, particularly Nehemiah. When that title for Joseph is first used, it's said that Joseph was the governor, so he was the one who sold grain to the people. The governor controls the supply of seed on behalf of the imperial state. To me, this is about Nehemiah and the control, literally, of which women the men of Israel could plant their seed inside. Remember, of course, that in the ancient worldview, there's no understanding of sperm and egg. The seed of a child was planted by a man and grown by a woman. And so it seems to me that the most overwhelming challenge to the Persian priestly policy is the most glaring. It's hiding in plain sight. The family of Israel has to move to Egypt to plant their seed there. Though the lands of Egypt and Canaan are both barren, Israel and his family settle in one of the few fertile areas on the edge of the Nile Delta. They will have to grow life in the foreign womb of Egypt. And so subtly, carefully, the story moves from a focus on the purity of seed 
to solidarity. The question becomes, who is my brother? And that's the third theme, which is another way of asking what family and tribe mean. To whom should brotherly commitment extend? Joseph treats Benjamin, his brother, by blood much better than all his other half-brothers. But he does still provide for them, even after Jacob is dead, and he could have sought revenge. Judah begins the story in chapter 1 by using brotherhood as a justification for selling Joseph rather than killing him, uh, which is a pretty low bar for brotherly responsibility. But by the end of the story, he's proved himself the leader of his brothers. He's willing even to become enslaved in order to secure the freedom of his half-brother, Benjamin. And it's that act of brotherly self-sacrifice that breaks Joseph's mask. But the brotherly question goes further. Should that responsibility extend to as yet unborn generations, as in the case of Onan, or to any other people in need of seed, in the case of the starving of Egypt? Both Onan and Joseph fail in their own way to show that brotherly kindness. Onan by spoiling his seed and Joseph by only granting seed in exchange for slavery. And there's one final literary symbol that makes this point very powerfully. The signet ring, symbol of authority in the ancient world. There are two signet rings in this story. Joseph has one, Judah the other. Joseph's comes direct from Pharaoh. Again, a fairly straightforward allusion to the Egyptian-backed campaign of King Jeroboam of Israel. But Judah's signet ring was lost to his Canaanite daughter-in-law. And its return forces him to acknowledge her right to bear his child. There is no authority in this story, I think, without the acknowledgement that seed cannot be controlled. At least that's the reading that quietly insists on being heard. The official reading is that Joseph's authority controls seed very well, thank you. But through the complexities of this carefully constructed story, Another set of ideas demands to be taken seriously and offers a different way forward. It's imperial policy everywhere to police borders, to set people against each other, to divide and rule. The eugenic style policies of controlling who can produce children with whom is the tip of an iceberg of division and fear. And it always serves the interests of those who aspire to dominate. But Judah has no legitimacy without Tamar. No authority if he dominates. This is not the end of the story. But it is a beginning to undermining a world in which pitting people against each other has material consequences. Controlling seed leads to slavery and death. It turns out that the future might only be found 
in the fertile place of foreignness. My huge thanks to Mark Brett and his work for really helping me with the translation of Genesis and for shaping the way I've approached telling this story. My hope is that by drawing this allusion to Ahijah's cloak and that moment with Jeroboam and how that masks the subtler themes that then undermine the Persian imperial context, I'm pressing his own ideas about the origin of Genesis more forcefully in the case of the story of Joseph uh, than he's done himself. But if you want to get into Genesis more, I would really highly recommend his book. It's very readable and uh, very, very carefully argued. But for now, thanks for joining me, and I'll see you next time for more Stories Beyond the Horizon.